There have been a lot of great hockey players over the years. Legends, both on and off the ice. The Overtime Podcast checks in with some of hockey's biggest names and talks about what these great players are up to today. Welcome to the Overtime Podcast. Here's your host, Gino Retta. Hey, hockey fans, welcome to the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Retta. There are so many great players who played the game of hockey over the past few decades. Players who made an impact not only on their teammates and fans, but to the sport of the hockey itself. The 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast takes great pride in catching up with some of these players, sharing their great stories and finding out what they're up to today. On this week's show, we're joined by a Toronto Maple Leaf legend who played 15 years in the NHL, was a Team Canada hero in the first ever Canada Cup, holds the NHL record for most points in a single game, and was elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1989. We're talking about Daryl Sittler. Daryl, welcome to the show. Great to have you with you, my friend. Thank you. It's always good to see you, Gino. We've, we've been around for a long time, you and I. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now delivery app, and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious crave crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just eleven sixty nine, order a large hot from the oven in minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a two-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats, 24-7. I need to share a story with you, something that just happened uh, last week when uh, I know you and Borja Salmin are very, very close. And just as background to our listeners, uh, Borja was diagnosed with ALS this past summer and the disease has progressed very, very quickly. We recently did a feature on him from back in Sweden where he's actually having a hard time communicating now and was recently traveling through Toronto uh, to come and see some friends and, you know, to, to share some moments with them. And, and Daryl, you were with him at Center Ice last week and I was up live on That's Hockey and we said, there's a great moment going on right now at Center Ice. Let's get to it. And it was a, it was a video live shot of you standing beside Borja and you were in tears. And I lost it. I got to be honest with you, my friend. I lost it on the air. Take me back to that moment of what that was like for you. Well, I think you and everybody who uh, watched it was touched by it. It's a, it's a moment in, in my life and a moment in those people's lives who watched it that they'll remember forever. Those moments don't come around very often. But when they do, they're precious. So um, I'll take you back a little bit before that night. Um, Borea contacted me back in early July, uh, very um, emotional uh, Zoom call we had where he and Pia uh, explained that he was just diagnosed with, with ALS. And we all know uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, what the outcome is, and the battle that both the patient and the family go through um, as it uh, digresses. So uh, keeping in touch with Borea throughout the summer, Zoom calls, introduced him to a teammate of ours, Mark Curtin, who has been uh, battling uh, ALS for the uh, last five, six years. In Mark's case, it started in his limbs and, and is you know, mo- slowly moving to other areas of his body. But Mark was very instrumental and helpful uh, with Borea and his family in getting through the last few months, uh, dealing with doctors, um, um, helping him um, 
suggestions for, for whether it's breathing or clearing his throat or whatever it is that Mark knew that uh, Borea family will be facing. He helped him. So he's been a wonderful support. Mark was there um, on Saturday, Saturday's game, but that evening um, uh, on uh, Friday night, um, Borea had said to me, uh, we met him in Montreal. He came in for the possibility of getting on a trial drug in September and he was in tough shape then. Um, he was having difficulty swallowing, difficulty speaking. But he did say to me, he says, Daryl, I'm going to be there on Hall of Fame weekend. And I knew just by seeing his condition that that would be a long shot, keeping in touch with him. But I got in touch with Brendan Shanahan and the LEAF organization and said, boy, you would really like to come on Hall of Fame weekend. So they set it all up. He could bring family members. All six of his children were there. Um, a couple other family members, their spouses. So we didn't know whether it was going to happen until about a day and a half before they got on the plane to be here because that's, yeah. you know, the, the seriousness of, and where he was with his illness. So the fact that he arrived was unbelievable for me as a teammate yeah. and a friend. And when I met him down uh, before the ceremonies, uh, obviously it was a very emotional time. Tiger Williams was with, with me, Lanny McDonald. And then they asked if I would walk out on the ice with Borea. And hey, it was very touching. I, I remember yeah. Borea holding on to me um, and, and by my hand and going by the player's bench and, and seeing the, uh, the serious, somber looks on each one of those players as we went by. And as we went by, I thought to myself, hey, that was Borea. That was me 40 years ago. But... Um, it was so touching to get out on the ice there to do the introductions. Now people ask me if Borea knew what was going on. He knows what's going on. I know his facial expressions might show uh, something different, but he was very, very well aware of everything. He wanted to be there. The fact that he got there shows you the character and the man and, and the toughness he is as a person. Um, it was a tough uh, flight over here and uh, obviously medical staff and He's uh, being fed through a feeding tube. So there's all these different complications that come with this travel. And I knew all that. So when the tears started to come, it was a magical moment that it's happened. I know Borey wanted to show his appreciation to the LEAF organization and the fans that supported him for so many years and loved him and vice versa. Even though there's probably a lot of people in that crowd there that never watched Borea play, they certainly got a sense of what he meant to not only the Leaf fans, but to the National Hockey League. And it's a moment I'll always cherish and remember as well as anybody who watched it, like yourself, you know. So the next night, um, uh, Boria's family went on the ice. It was kind of a perfect weekend for for us that we had games back to back because the Hall of Fame obviously is a special evening. And Boria has been to that Hall of Fame game many times and we've played in those legends games together and it was always fun to get back together so I think that's why he wanted to be there in such a, a bad way but Saturday night again was a very emotional night and when I say that knowing uh, our, our, our team and the and the season's ticket holders there was probably another half or three quarters new crowd that wasn't there on the Friday night so it's yeah. nice that Everybody could share that experience on, on both nights who were there. So um, on the Monday evening, um, Borey was, he, he wasn't in any good shape to go to the NHL or the uh, Alumni Awards, at the Hall of Fame. He wanted to, but he had a little fall the night before and, and uh, 
so we, we got a private room, uh, Tiger uh, and his wife and my wife and Borea's family, Jimmy McKenney came with Christine and we were all there and Borea was really engaged and in tune watching it. That's awesome. Had many, many tears on his eyes as uh, Lanny uh, introduced him to, to say that he was watching it. Uh, you know, Alfredson got on and talked about him as did a couple of the other suites. So it was a magical weekend. The fact that three Swedes were inducted, Matt's was there and, and everything else. You couldn't have written the script any better. It's so hard to watch. I mean, you, you were in the room with him for, for years, what, eight years. I think you guys played together uh, with the Leafs. I covered him as a young reporter back then in your early playing days and stuff. And walking into that room and seeing when he gets changed, the guy was just chiseled, probably one of the most fit, physically fit NHLers I've ever seen. And then his skill level on the ice, the things he could do, the way he could control the play. Uh, I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of people that haven't had the opportunity to see Borja Salmi play. But for those who maybe never saw him, I mean, it's easy for me to talk about him because, you know, I'm, I'm a broadcaster. That's my job. But you're a teammate. You were one of the all-time greats yourself. Tell our audience how great this man actually was on the ice during his playing days. Well, when Borea came over as a 23-year-old, he and I are six months apart in age, and uh, um, they were the first two Swedes, he and Inge Hammerstrong. And uh, I think there was a little bit more attention on Inge than there was on Borea. Inge was a little bit older. But yeah. Borea just grew on us. Um, first of all, their, their level of conditioning was beyond anything that any bar teammates had at that time so they were all ahead of the game there and you learn quite quickly um, watching him in practice and, and watching him in the games that his mental toughness and his compete level and his um, just wanting to play every shift as hard as he could was there whether it was practice or not and then as the season started and other teams saw that hey this guy's pretty good out there and he logged a lot of ice time he became a a physical target of a lot of teams in the seventies. You could get away with that. The Downey book brawls, the sucker punches behind the scene, all those sorts of things. Borea would come off the ice after some games, you'd in the dressing room in the shower and you'd look at his body and he had all these scars and welts, you know, uh, all over him, guys spearing him and pulling their stick against him. But that didn't deter him from, from the way he played. He was one of the best block uh, shot blockers uh, as a defenseman. And as a forward that played with him, he had that peripheral vision that if you were in an open spot, somehow he could find you and see you and put it on yeah. your stick. Um, he never won the Norris Trophy. I played against all those guys who won it in my era. They were all great players. Borea could have won it as well as they, they did. Uh, they were on Stanley Cup teams, so obviously there's a little bit of def different yeah. recognition that comes with that. But I think each player who won that Norris Trophy can stand up and say, hey, Borea saw me was... You know, he was on the all-star team, I think, six times, first all-star yeah. team a few times. So it's a fine line. And uh, and he played a long, long career. When they showed that video of his career, um, obviously the standing ovation he got in the Canada Cup and Maple Leaf Gardens was a, you know, it was a, you know, a goosebump feeling for, for all players that watched that and for fans that gave him that ovation. And then when he had that hundred some stitches down his face, do you remember that? That was awful. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you were talking about the damage the body's taken it. Like if you're listening to this or watching this podcast, you need to Google Borea Salming face cut. Cause that, 
what was it, like 120 stitches he took from that skate across the face? Yeah, and it just happened to miss his eye, come down through here in yeah. his face. And, and uh, yeah, that was an awful feeling. But when you talk about him being chiseled, hey, I was with Bory a year ago, and and there wasn't a doubt in my mind that this guy was going to live until he was 90, 95. His mother's still alive at 96 up in, in the northern part of Sweden. So uh, that's what we all thought. Obviously, ALS is a nasty, uh, devastating disease. Why people get it, nobody knows. I know Bory has had six concussions in his career. Mark Curtin had three. There's 50 ex-NFL players um, who have ALS. So it might have something to do with brain injury, brain damage or whatever, but uh, it's a nasty, nasty disease. And unfortunately, like when we talk about Lou Gehrig's disease, that's 80 some years ago, whatever it is, and they still haven't been able to find a cure. They're getting closer and we're going to do everything we can for Borea and Mark Curtin and those other people uh, and families with ALS to try to make a difference moving forward for sure. Good for you. The foundation is now raising awareness and funds. So that's a good thing. You mentioned um, the Canada Cup. Borja obviously was hugely involved in international hockey. And I want to ask you about that 1976 Canada Cup because it's been a long debate amongst all of us in the sports industry. Was that the single greatest gathering of Canadian talent on a Team Canada in history? We called it the dream team. We called it the greatest roster ever. I understand the 72 Summit Series drew great attention because it was Canada, Russia, and the first time that ever happened. But in terms of talent on a single team, I mean, the guys you had, you had Bobby Clark, Guy Lafleur, Larry Robinson, Bobby, Bobby Hall, Marcel Dion, Phil Esposito. Was that, in your opinion, objectively, because you were a part of it, <laughs> the single greatest gathering of a Team Canada in history? Well, in, in my opinion, if you look at the careers you're talking about, Bobby Orr, he played in that series. He was he was on the first All-Star team. Borea was uh, on the first All-Star team next to Bobby Orr. So it tells you yeah. <laughs> in comparison when the greatest players in the world are playing in a tournament like that. But 19 players off that hockey club are inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. You and, you know, what happens like anything, the farther you get away from it, you know, there's new people come in and there's a debate on everything. And the players are great today, as was the 87 Canada Cup team who won and Mario scored the goal. But that team, to me, was as good as it gets. Uh, there was a culmination of younger guys like Denny Potvin, uh, Marcel Dion coming into the league. And then on the other end, there was Esposito and and Bobby Orr and a number of great players like that, yeah. Rogie Vashon. So um, I say it was one of the best teams ever, Canada assembled together. And uh you know, when you look at the the other teams, like the Stasnys were on, they were young, they were on the Czech team. Yeah. A lot of those great Russian players, it was communist at the time. And a few years later, when it changed over, those guys got out of the country and, and had fantastic careers in the National Hockey League. So that 76 series was full of great players from around the world. You mentioned the Czech team back then. It was uh, still Czechoslovakia, the team that you played in the final. Uh, a rather dramatic finish for the 1976. Take me back to the way it all ended. Tie game, overtime, and Daryl Sittler's the hero. Well, the, the, the Czechs, uh, I think at the start of the tournament, wouldn't have been one of the favorites to be in the finals. Everybody picked the Russians or the Swedes, right? Because they knew more of those players. But the Czechs, again, communist at the time with the Stasny. They had a great goalie in Zarilla. And um, he was one of those goalies that when you were coming down the wing, um, he would come out and challenge you almost to the yeah. bottom of the face-off circle. So 
we had talked about in the dressing room. If you get that opportunity coming down, make sure you take a peek up because he might be right in front of you. And that's how it happened. Uh, I was on the ice with Lanny McDonald. He passed the puck up to Marcel Dion, great player, great centerman, threw it over to me. And somehow I went around the defenseman. He was charging out and I looked up and Zarilla's in front of me, go to the side and put it in the empty net. And it was kind of, uh, you know, that was my greatest moment as a player, uh, scoring and winning a winning goal and winning a championship. Obviously, I was, you know, disappointed not to be on the Stanley Cup team in my career, but that Canada Cup team it was as good as it gets. And one of the cool things after that, um, going back to Toronto, I mean, Lanny and I were on that team together. Our good friend, Mr. Ballard, had the uh, the uh, receptionist who answered the phone there, the home of Daryl Sittler. So that's one of the nice memories I remember remember of Harold Ballard, which was awesome. Uh, one of the nice memories. We're in conversation with Hockey Hall of Famer Daryl Sittler on the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. That is one of, I, I'm telling you, Daryl, I've covered some incredible stories in the world of sport my life. Uh, when I first met Harold Ballard, I was like, I can't believe this guy. I, I like just in talking to him and seeing him and then watching things unfold and no one got to see it firsthand more than you did. It's one of the strangest relationships I've ever seen in my life in all of sports, because we talk about love, hate relationships. Is that the way to describe your relationship with for the, the former owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs? For those who don't know this, who aren't old enough, uh, Harold Ballard, grumpy old man who lived in Maple Leaf Gardens, never was afraid to talk and was in front of everything. What was your relationship actually like with him? Well, it started out, it was fine. And when Jim Gregory was the general manager, who uh, obviously uh, brought Boria in and Lanny and Tiger and that whole group of guys, Roger Nielsen, uh, Jim was very, he was a very mild-mannered guy. And he was in control of Harold. He'd keep a lot of that stuff off to the side. You know, it was probably going up on in the front office. But as Harold got older and, uh, you know, a little more whatever, he crankier, was, yeah, crankier, or whatever. He um, yeah. he took the initiative all the time to create drama for no reason. Yeah. So you media guys, when he'd come in, you don't know what he was going to say or how he was going to say it, and it became a frontline paper, and that would fire back to us guys and me as a captain of the team. I'd always kind of have to be the front guy to, you yeah. know, to talk about it. I'm, the Ingie Hammerstrand thing about going into the corner with twelve eggs coming out, none of them broken, that sort of stuff. You know, the thing with women reporters coming in the dressing room. There were so many different issues. that as Stuff a player, he never would have gotten away with today. No, no chance. No, totally, totally not. And, and, and as a player and a captain of the team, our focus was to play hockey and do our job, right? And then you get distracted with that. And obviously the media want to build it up. The whole showdown yeah. issue, he banned me from going on hockey night in Canada. There were so many different things. Imlac had a lot to do when he came. He was worse. When Harold hired Punch Imlac, and no disrespect for Punch winning the Cups in the 50s, but now we had a players' union. I was a vice president. I was a captain. and no trade contract. So Imlac didn't like that, those things that I had that maybe had a little bit more power than any other player had with them. And I was a popular guy with the, with the media, with the fans. And so I was his target. So in my mind, um, I had to do what I felt was right, the right thing to do. Sometimes it wasn't very nice, and and uh, sometimes it was a aggravating in a battle, a lot of stress. But if I look can look at myself in the mirror and do the right things for myself, for the team, and everybody else, and the rest, you know, is what it is, so to speak. You can't control that. So 
under those circumstances, it became a bigger thing. Imlac traded Lanny, traded Tiger, traded Lanny. That was a bad part. I mean, don't don't skirt by that. When he traded away Lanny McDonald, that was a direct shot at you to say, I'll show you who's in charge, because he knew you two guys were really close together. I mean, that just seemed like one of the most spiteful things I've ever seen. He ships him off to Colorado, like at that point, a nothing team to kind of send a message to you. Yeah, the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, Lanny's wife's seven or eight months pregnant. The family's in and okay, I trade you, so to speak. But but there were a lot of issues building up to that. And I don't want to get into them because it's a long story. It's no, the no, whole no. stuff I talked about. But yeah. what happened there, and and the timing was such that uh, after Lanny was traded, it was a, it was a Saturday morning, uh, morning of a Leaf uh, Hockey Night in Canada game. And I, I remember clearly saying to myself, why am I here? What's my job? My job's to play hockey. That's what I'm getting paid for. He doesn't want me to be a captain. There's no communication. There's no you know, cohesiveness there. I'm just going to take the seat off. I'm just going to go do what I'm paid for. And I remember going home. My wife, Wendy, says, Mary, are you sure, Daryl? I said, no, this is what I feel. I, I had five, six yeah. months of this, and I just want to go play hockey. So I wrote all the reasons why down because I knew the media afterwards would be a you know, it'd be unbelievable. And I went to the rink. Nobody knew about it. Came off the uh, the ice and uh, went in the dressing room. I asked Gunnar Kinnear for a scalpel knife. Very emotionally, I'm in the um, in the washroom trying to take the C off as neatly as I could. Couldn't. It was triple stitched. Nervous. So I asked Gunnar. I said, "Listen, without saying anything, anybody, would you do this?" And then he did. And I went in to talk to the players. I talked to the coaches first, Floyd Smith and Dick Duff. And I talked to my team in a very emotional way, saying, this is what I'm going to do with the idea the timing that, hey, you know, the buzzer would ring and it'd be time to go on the ice and away we go, you know. Yeah. Well, what happened, and I don't think it's ever happened before uh, or after, uh, the Zamboni broke down. And I'm thinking in my headspace, Imlax planted this thing so he can come down and tell me to take my jersey off, suspend me or whatever it was. That wasn't the case. So then after the game, uh, obviously, it became a huge story. And then that was on the Saturday, Sunday, we had off Monday morning, the Leafs come to me as if they're really nice and they're going to allow my family and I to go to Florida for a week to have a nice vacation, you know? And I said, uh, -uh. I'm here to play hockey. I'm here to show yeah. you and everybody else. So um, I stuck to my guns on that, not to brag, but not anybody would know, but uh, the second half of that season, I was second to Gretzky in the scoring, right? Oh, you uh, were flying that year. Yeah, everything was going well. Well, Imlac's answer to that was that was he he was the guy to motivate me to yeah to be that way. I mean, that's kind of the man you're dealing with. So anyway, Imlac had a heart attack. Ballard never brought him back, and and we moved on from the Imlac era. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the Seven Now Delivery app, and Seven Eleven will have your hot and delicious crave crushers to your door almost before you can say, "Fuel me up, Sev." You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large hot from the oven in minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a two liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24-7. Short time after that, where you came out in the press conference and all was patched up between yourself and Harold Ballard and you guys had made friends and you were, you know, willing to wear the C again. And how did, how did all that stuff 
come to play behind the scenes. Was that something you went to him and said, look, we need to, you mentioned it a couple minutes ago. You're the captain of the team. You're still the leader of this team. Everybody still looks up to you. You're still the points leader. You're still one of the best players in the NHL on that era. How did that unfold? So what happened after a bunch of them, like had the heart attack. So I wasn't even being invited to training camp that summer. And then at the end of August, he had the heart attack. I had a meeting with Harold and it was only Harold could he and I are in the hot stove. It's a seven o'clock in the morning. And I haven't, again, he lives in the gardens. Yeah. So you're not going to meet anywhere else. He lived in the bunker. So, so, I mean, and you know him as well as anybody, but so I'm in that meeting with him and I said, Harold, I just have one question. And he apologized. He said, Daryl, it was a mistake for me to hire a punch, but he said, when I hired him as the owner, I had to back him up, so to speak, which I respect. So I said, I have one question for you, Mr. Ballard. If Mr. Emlack retire or recovers from his heart attack, are you going to have him back? And this is true. Harold looks at me and I said, Daryl, he says, I'll have him back. He can drive the Zamboni around a couple laps, but that's it. I'm like, holy shit. And so there's so many times, there's so many times in my career when incidents like that happen, there's many of them. I'm saying to myself, this is the Toronto Maple Leafs. This is the history. This is the tradition. I was fortunate in the seventies to be with George Armstrong, Dave Keon, who were there with the Teeter Kennedys before. So I had all this, still do today, this respect and this history and all that sort of stuff. And Harold kind of shattered that all in just the way he he ran the organization, so to speak. But to get back to your question, so what happened when everything was resolved and back, I was, uh, I had, I think, one year left of my contract and they had made a trade for Wolf Paymont. I was making, I don't know, 180 grand a year then or something. And, uh, new guys come in and now they're making 250 260 or whatever and jim gregory had always said to me if you're the captain of the hockey club he wanted me to be the highest paid guy just out of respect whether it's five grand more which was he didn't have to do that so uh, i went to harold ballard and uh he said daryl yeah we'll, we'll sit down and we'll uh we'll work that out so that happened in say september october went by november he and i i could sense this feeling that he was stalling for a reason right yeah and we were, and Alan Eagleson was my agent. So we were trying to push him a little bit. So he said, uh, you call me at two o'clock this afternoon. And it was, a, we had morning practice because they had a board meeting that morning. Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, he's got to go before the board. He's going to tell him what he's going to do. And uh, so I call him at two o'clock and um, I was going to, I was over at a restaurant across the street. Turnbull had a little restaurant with the idea. I waited told him at two o'clock and I'm going to go up in his office and meet with him. Eh? Yeah. And this is where, what happened to me. So I'm there on the phone. The secretary puts me on to Harold Ballard. Exactly how it went. He says, Daryl, I had that meeting. He says, here's what I'll do for you. I'll trade you to any city you want to go to. And I thought, you bastard, you know. You can tell me to my face even. You know, I'm on a telephone. So I was, I was tech day. Oh, for sure you would be. The guy had promised you the cash, and instead he's saying he's trying to run you out of town. Yeah, he said, I'll trade you. Do, you know. So now I go over there. Jerry McMahon is the GM, and I felt bad for Mac, okay? And I go into his office. Okay, this is what this jerk owner said to me. I am out of here. I'm not freaking yeah. playing, okay? If that's, if that's, the, is that, yeah. if that's the disrespect I get, he goes, slow down, slow down, slow down. He didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. I said, listen. So the deal I had in my contract, um, was a no trade and I could kind of pick and you choose could pick so, a couple teams. Right. So I went home and, uh, and what happened, I went, to, I went to the team doctor and I went to my own independent doctor to, and they knew everything in the history of what was going on that whole season. 
And they said, Daryl, you got to take some time off. You're going to have a nervous breakdown. Something's going to happen. So I had that kind of as my, my backup thing. I didn't go to the next practice. I sat out. Media goes AWOL, all this crap. My, my home surrounded with cameras and out front and all that sort of stuff. And then finally they came to the position where they made a deal with Philadelphia Flyers. So I was ready emotionally to move on and get out of there for my family's sake, for my career's sake. Yeah. And uh, I kind of never looked back, you know, I mean, I was so honored and proud when Cliff Fletcher, uh, Steve Stavro was the owner, hired Cliff Fletcher, brought him into the organization and Cliff, I've always known him, a classy guy, does things Very the right classy. way. When he called me up and he says, Daryl, would you like, I'd like you to be a part of our new, our new uh, management team. You know, you come in and we sat down. Now I retired in 85. That was 1991. We didn't have a relationship. If you're an ex-Leaf player, if you wanted to go to Leaf game, you bought your own tickets, you went there, nobody yeah. would know. Harold didn't respect to have alumni or respect the past little players, you know. So that all changed. I was a part of it. I've been a part of their organization since. We've got a strong relationship with our, our, our management now. And uh, the players appreciate it. The former players appreciate it. And management's appreciate it. It's a, good, it's a great partnership for all of us. And I remind everybody, each Leaf player today is going to be alumni someday, you know, uh, yeah. whether you played five years or Austin Matthews might play 15 years. So it's alumni are important, you know, and it yeah. takes, it takes uh, management's effort and, and, and working together to make it all work for sure. And what you did, what you accomplished during your career to get to the point for the recognition that you had, uh, we're in conversation with the hockey hall of famer, Daryl Sittler on the seven 11 overtime podcast. While there were some weird blips in your time, which were mostly owner driven with Harold Ballard in Toronto, you put together an amazing career. You ended up as one of the top, the 100 greatest players in NHL history. That list came out, I think it was in 03. They raised your number 27 to the rafters uh, in the building, which is something that really is a pretty exclusive club. When stuff like that happens, when you get that kind of recognition, does it allow you to kind of put the other stuff aside and say the politics is politics, the lousy ownership at times is lousy ownership. But at the end of the day, you put together an un, one of the greatest NHL careers of all time. Well, I appreciate uh, your remarks here. Um, one of the things, even to this day, um, uh, I try to do the right things for the right reasons. And I, and I share that with my kids every day we all know what's right and what's wrong. And if it's right, try to do the right thing. You know, you can lie to yourself. So I try to live my life that way. So going through all that Harold Ballard and Imlac stuff. Um, when my career was over um, and uh, now I've got this new part of my life with Wendy and the kids. Um, she was diagnosed with colon cancer at a young age. Our youngest one was off to university. And um, I was part of the organization at that time. And Ken Dryden was the president, and uh, he, this was back in 2001, it was. And he phoned me. Um, I'll always remember the day he phoned me. I was out in the deck with Wendy. She was taking chemo at the time. It was September 15th. And he said, we're going to honor you and Frank Mahovlich and put your two number 27s up together on the 75th anniversary opening night of you know, the season, which was great. But I said to Ken, it's, you know, Wendy's sick, and he knew that. I said, the timing might not work for that. He understood it. Anyway, I didn't participate in it. They put Frank's jersey up. Wendy died three days later, October the 6th, right? So, so management said, Daryl, 
um, you pick a time when you're ready for it with your family emotionally. So I waited about a year and a half. I wanted to do it on Saturday night when the Habs were playing the Leafs as a kid. I was a Habs fan and I knew, you know, the significance of that. Bellevue was my childhood idol. And uh, he was my so, idol, by the way, too. Oh, so, so anyway, I'll tell you about Bellevue story in a minute, which is awesome. So, so anyway, um, so, so, so can respect that. So we were doing it on February the 8th and about three or four weeks before he called me and he showed me an artist rendering of what my banner might look like. And I said that, and while I was sitting there, I said, you know, what would be really meaningful for me. I said, Wendy was such a part of my life for 30 years, you know, Mary, she raised my kids. I was out there doing the things that you're talking about, having a successful career. Would you consider allowing me to put her name on the banner? Right. And I, and and, and I caught him totally off guard and he said, I don't know, Daryl. He says, all those other guys are going to want their wives' names. I said, this is a little different. This is, I mean, yeah. so he said, leave it with me. And uh, I, I knew we had to go to the board and the ownership and stuff. So we came back a couple of weeks later, a week later, and uh, showed me a new artist rendering. And he said to me, here's what we'd, we'd like to do. We'll put her name on in the blue, on the blue lettering on the blue thing. He said, you all know it. Your kids will know. I said, no, I said, it's important for me that, that people see it. It doesn't have to be big, but if it's going to be yeah. there. To me, that's that's just the respect I have for this thing. Yeah. So anyway, I I he knew the seriousness that I wanted that, convinced them to do it. So I don't know if you remember that ceremony. I'm out at center ice. I'm doing my little spiel. The banner's going up, and they zoom in on Wendy, and I said she's here. And that was my greatest moment to this day in yeah. my sporting career. You can talk about the ten point game or Landy McDonald against the Islanders or the Canada Cup. Because that brought it all together. That was my career, my kids, my wife, and the Leaf fans playing the Habs. And I'll always remember that moment. And I'm, I'm grateful and thankful for the Leafs to, to do that. And Wendy's name is still there. And, you know, I know it. And uh, if they zoom in on it, the other people at home know it. And that's the respect I have, you know. Yeah. That's awesome, Daryl. That's awesome. I remember when you were going through that. It was, it was a rough time. It was a rough, rough time. We're in conversation with Hockey Hall of Famer Daryl Sittler on the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. Uh, Daryl, you you mentioned a couple of things a couple of moments ago. First, uh, the 10-point game, and I definitely need to ask you about that. But you also said you had a fun story you wanted to share about Jean Beliveau. What's that? Well, when I was a kid growing up in the village of St. Jacobs, my dad and my brothers were Leaf fans. And I don't know, something I liked about the Habs, how they skated and, you know, just listened to Danny Galliman back then, and Jean Beliveau was my childhood idol. And under the Christmas tree, Santa Claus gave me this number four Habs jersey, and I'd wear that everywhere. I'd wear it to Sunday school. I'd wear it until I grew out of the thing, right? Yeah. So I get drafted by the Leafs uh, in uh, 1970, and I'm in the Montreal Forum, and I look up, and I'm facing off against Jean. He's 41, his last season, and I'm 20. So a magical moment for me is a for sure. Player. And then. I go on and have a successful career. 89, I get elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame, which is a great honor. But from that point on, I get to see John Bellavo at some Hall of Fame events or golf tournament, still with the same magical goosebumps that I had when I was a kid. So when Wendy died of cancer, um, it was the morning of her funeral. I lived over in East Amherst, New York. My phone rings. It's about 1030 in the morning, and I pick it up. He said, Daryl, it's Mr. Jean Beliveau. I want you to know I'm thinking of you on your most difficult day of your life. And oh, he went and found my number. It was important for him to call me and tell me. So when I hear, even to this day, people who knew John Beliveau, there's all sorts of 
stories that he tells like that. And it just gives me, um, you know, inspires me more to do those little things that sometimes you have no idea the difference it's going to make in some people's lives. If you sit on the sidelines and do nothing, probably nothing's going to happen. But if you get out there and do a few of those things, uh, you might see in the background here, I got my picture of Terry Fox hanging here. And yeah. There's not a time I don't go by that. Just think, here's a guy who's had such a tragedy in his life to lose his leg, but he's going to run 26 miles a day to cross Canada to help you and I and anybody else who has cancer. And when Terry wanted to meet me, uh, I wanted to meet him as much. And I went home, grabbed my all-star jersey, put it in a bag. He had no idea it was coming. We just finished 26 miles downtown Toronto. And I walked into his room and I said, hey, would you like to go for a run? And I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life, as I will for yeah. Boreas, because the expression on his face, the two of us meeting each other first for the first time, going down University Avenue into Nathan Phillips Square, getting to know Terry Fox personally from that day forward. Um, to me, that his picture sits here. There's been $800 million. My grandkids, it's been 40 years ago. They're in the Terry Fox run. They have this understanding and, and, and knowing what type of person and the guy that he is. But, but the thing that stuck out most about Terry Fox that I think all of us can learn a lesson in his life is his, his humility. He was such a humble guy. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about whatever. It was about just trying to help other people. And uh, his ego got out of the way, didn't have an ego. And to me, it's a reminder every time I go by that photo that maybe there's a few things I can do a little different, a little better, or remind me uh, just to make that day a good day. So Terry Fox is my hero. It was an unbelievable day. I'll tell you, Daryl, I was there at Nathan Phillips Square. It was packed. And to see you up there with your jersey and, and what Terry Fox was doing, it was like two incredible worlds of celebrity, of major achievement coming together in like i remember standing there and i was just a kid i was like this is nuts this is crazy that this is going on it was it was well it's so moment. it's so wonderful that today that his 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 dream his marathon of hope continues on obviously it takes oh, yeah. a lot of effort from a lot of volunteers family members uh corporate partners want to make it all keep happening but it's a legacy that day i was proud to be a part of and continue to be a part of and i hope it lasts forever Hundreds of millions of dollars raised. Uh, another pretty crazy moment was, and we got to mention this, February 7th, 1976, the Boston Bruins are coming into Toronto. They're 20 points ahead of the Leafs in the standings. Uh, your Toronto Maple Leafs at that point, I think you had one win in seven coming in, so everybody knew the Bruins were going to hand it to you that night. And Daryl Sittler has the single most offensively productive game in NHL history, a 10 point game, including six goals. What happened? Did you have any idea? Like at what point did you realize this is out of control? Well, to back it up before the, that weekend, uh, talking about Harold Ballard, he'd made a comment to you guys, the media, if only he could find a center to play with uh, Lanny and Arrow. And I was the centerman. So obviously it was a, you know, a shot under the bow at me, but uh, th that was standard. So I went to that game that morning, Saturday morning, skate, Maple Leaf Gardens, the same as any other game. But on the way home, um, I knew my wife wasn't going to be home and I got stuck in traffic. I was behind something and now it was getting close to one o'clock and I, I knew I needed a nap. 
and I didn't want to make my own pregame. So I stopped in at Swiss Chalet and grabbed some chicken and some fries. You know, and I was, I remember eating yeah. them on the seat of my car, dipping it in. And <laughs> so I go out and I go to the rink that night and uh, I get 10 points. I happen to mention on hockey night in Canada afterwards. So they sent me 500 bucks for the gifts or certificates from Swiss Chalet. Now nice. back then you could buy a lot of chicken for 500 bucks. That's a lot bucks. of chicken. <laughs> not, not so much now, but what happened, um, you know, you're playing the Bruins. Obviously, it was a coast to coaster, and those are always special Saturday night. Original six teams playing, and um, it just started out. We started scoring a few goals, scoring a few goals, and then at the end of the second period, I'd had seven points, right? And Stan Obodiak, who you probably remember, I was do. a statistician, and he came all the way down, come over to me, says, "Daryl, you've got seven. You know, you get another one. You tie Rockets' record from the '40s. You know, eight points in a game." So that's when I first was aware that there was a record of eight points. We went out in the third period, uh, scored another three. The last goal, if you see the video tape of it, I was behind the net. I was trying to pass the puck out in the slot to Errol Thompson and Brad Park stuck his leg out, deflected it, went through Reese's legs. And I just kind of put my hands up and, you know, I don't know that at the time. Yeah. I, it was a great record and a great, great game. We had to play the next night. So we didn't have a lot of time to celebrate it. And, uh, I didn't realize that this record here you are 46, seven years yeah. later is still a record day. I, I remember uh, watching the games after retired in the late eighties, early nineties, Wayne Gretzky, Marilyn Liu. Uh, they got eight points a couple of times and there was always yeah. that, you know, chance that they could score 10. Uh, never happened, but uh, I was proud to do it in Leaf uniform for sure. Obviously uh, I think Boria had six points that night. Uh, Lanny had four. I kid my buddy Tiger, who was here with me this weekend. He was minus two. He, we, we won 11-4, and he was on for two goals against the none four. So <laughs> I got by him. I said, You're the only guy that didn't congratulate me. You were potent in the corner. But uh, those are the, the close ties we have with each other for sure. But it's a great – talking about Harold Ballard again, gave my family and I a, a beautiful uh, uh, antique tea service with a plaque on it with his uh, – uh, name inscribed on it and so those are all nice things uh, yeah. that he uh, continued to do for us Daryl uh, it's been a phenomenal journey it's been I've been so fortunate to be able to cover your you know pretty much most of your career and to be able to share in some of these great moments with you and it's so nice that we can still call each other friends and it's been great reminiscing with these stories uh, thank you so much for all that you've done for us on the hockey level, but even more importantly, what you've done away from the game. We really appreciate it. Well, I got a lot of fond memory memories with Eugenio and our friends at special Olympics. You know, we do that thing yeah. every year, have been doing it before hockey and all those other things. And, you know, the time goes by and you say, where, where does it go? But that started 40, some 40, 50 years ago too. Yeah. So, and it's still going strong and it's the young guys today. And even in your field that have to keep it going for sure. They have, it grabs to your, your heartstrings, as you know, and it when it does, does. Uh, you know, it's everybody's a winner for sure. Thank you for your comments. Thank you, Daryl. Be well, my friend. Take care. See you soon. The Overtime Podcast is proudly presented by 7-Eleven. Before leaving the rink, order your favorite Slurpee, fresh 100% premium Arabica coffee, hot from the oven pizza and wings, pint of ice cream, or even a carton of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread from the 7Now app and Team 7-Eleven. We'll have your order ready for pickup 24-7. Hey, if you missed any parts of the show, don't worry. Visit our website at overtimepodcast.ca where you can both listen and subscribe to future shows. 
7-Eleven's Overtime Podcast can be found on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next week, I'm Gino Retta saying so long, hockey fans, and thanks for joining us on the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now delivery app, and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious crave crushers to your door almost before you can say, Fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24-7.